0: Hello, and welcome to Business Without The podcast brought to you by Ori Clark, who have been giving straight-talking financial and legal advice since 1935. How about that? Right slap bang in the middle of the Great Depression. (laughs) My name's Dominic Frisby, and alongside me, well, it's a good time to start a business in a depression, isn't it? Um, My name's Dominic Frisby, and alongside me today is my co-host and partner at Ori Clark, Juliet Ory, who is on a mission to bring the fascinating business stories that the firm's clients are living to a wider audience with this podcast. So, Juliet, how are you doing? Who is our guest today? What are we going to be talking about?
1: Well, hello, Dominic today's guest is my good friend melissa jolly melissa is an award-winning garden designer who's won the bbc gardeners world live competition and the people's choice award and has built three consecutive show gardens for rhs shows royal horticultural shows i take that
0: royal cultural society
1: of society okay good Melissa's journey began through her obsession with nature and wildlife, which led her to study behavioural science, travel through southern Africa and worked in Zimbabwe. Worked in the UK as a researcher making wildlife documentaries, at which point she decided to set up her own garden design company in 2007, alongside being a full-time mother. As well as garden designing, Melissa likes to renovate houses which have been featured in TV shows, period homes and real homes. We're in good company indeed. Melissa, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Now, Dom, I am going to start because because you know I like to get in there, right? So Mel is always at the forefront of everything, right? I have known Mel for many, many, many decades, right? So since we were 11, I just like to put in there, she was the first to have a boyfriend, the first to get married, the first to have children, the first to renovate, buy a property when we were all still in the bars being busy and naughty. She was very responsible. I'm putting that in there for her children. Anyway, she is always full of wisdom and always at the forefront, right? So she moves out of London. She moves to Bristol, which is now the place to live. She did that more than a decade ago. And now she's, she's in the wonderful, joyful Berkshire, I shan't declare exactly where, uh, with a menagerie of animals. And if you go and visit her, Dom, it is like going to the good life.
0: Very good. And I imagine... I, I'm, I'm going to get Juliet to describe your garden to me. I think it's better if it comes from a third party in a sec. So prepare your description, Juliet. But I imagine this year, with the sort of big exodus from the cities and everyone rediscovering gardens and w- wanting to get back in touch with nature and reevaluating their lives and all the rest of it, I imagine you've had a fairly busy year.
2: It has been the busiest year since I started, yeah. I mean, it doesn't surprise me because I know how gardening makes me feel.
0: What do you mean, how it makes you feel?
2: So I find it very therapeutic. I think having hands in the soil is evolutionary normal. Like we were, we were designed to kind of um, be physically in touch with nature. I... Quite often listen to podcasts when I'm in the garden. Yeah. So I stick a podcast in, I sit out there and I mean, I find weeding therapeutic. I find sowing seeds incredibly satisfying. Probably only in the last four or five years I've got into properly growing food. So we've got a polytunnel in the greenhouse. So that takes up quite a lot of my time.
0: Is it nice eating the food that you've grown?
2: Yeah. And it just gives you a different appreciation for food. So I grow peas. They're probably one of my favorite things to grow because the taste of a fresh pea, not cooked, just straight from the pod, before you've even got back to the house, is like a little tiny sweet. And it's not like going to the freezer. I don't know, you know, I'll go to the freezer and, and cook a load of peas. But when you've grown them, you realize what's gone into that you know, I I will quite often bring our own homegrown peas in, a tiny little handful, like a tablespoonful, and put them on the top of a salad. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. That's like little tiny, you know, tiny bits of beautifulness.
0: Can you answer a question for me? This is something that's been nagging away and the internet has not given me the answer that I've been looking for. Oh God,
2: for. if the internet doesn't know.
0: Well, <laughs> well, I think, I think the internet does know, it just hasn't given me the answer that I wanted to hear. Which is, I once listened to a podcast about longevity. And they studied all these various places in the world where people live extraordinarily long lives. I think there's various Greek islands, there's bits of Costa Rica, certain parts of Japan Mm. where people just live way longer than they do anywhere else. And one of the the things they found in common with all of these places is one, they had very high fish content in their diet. The other thing they had is very high bean content. Content in their diet, as so much so that they would eat some form of bean almost every day. Is a pea a bean? <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Dom, I was hoping for some it's real wisdom. I was waiting for you to tell me you were moving you to know, one of
0: these. Do peas <laughs> count? <laughs>
2: I mean, I want to say no, but I don't know why. I don't know why I'm probably going to get horribly told off. They've they've got pods, they've got beans inside. I don't know.
0: So sadly, yummy though peas are, they don't quite count. No. So, Juliet, why don't you describe Mel's garden to us?
1: So, Mel, you will correct me if I get any of this wrong, because as you know, I'm a, I'm a bit useless, but. It is like the most magical place. You go down this lane and Mel bought some land off a farmer. So she always ends up, you know, finding some relic somewhere. And I remember meeting in, in, you know, she used to come up to town and we'd we'd get great pictures or or stories of the renovation of, of this shack. I mean, it literally was something falling down. And of course, Mel has made it this like magical home and restored everything. So you've got a beautiful home down a country lane, and then she has built out all different areas. So you've got this wild garden, you've got beautiful views, animals everywhere. So so why I describe for those that are old enough will remember the good life, you know, Mel is that person that you want. Be able to go and visit, and I I went during the pandemic when we were actually allowed, of course, to to visit Mel with my children because we're doing our city living, and uh, they wanted to ride a pony. I was like, oh god, who do I know owns owns a pony or any of those things? So we went up to, to Mel's house, and my children's eyes were like on stalks because not only does Mel have a pony, she has a dog, she has a cat, she has chickens. She then has all these. The, the greenhouses and poly tunnels where you walk in and you just start eating. And we like ate the most magical things. And my children were then obsessed with with then pulling up half her garden and half of the vegetables. And we we kind of had to remove ourselves because they got a little carried away, you know, removing the cucumber off the vine and getting involved. But it, it, it's the most beautiful place. But Mel, you have successfully managed and you are one of my only mates really that successfully manages a work-life balance. And I want to discuss how you achieve that because you have managed to be a mom and do all of these things and then start a business. And not only did you start a business, you have won awards, like you are super freaking talented and you always put yourself down and you always are like, oh, I just do a bit of this and it's like this spectacle. Killer thing you've created. That's very sweet of you to say that.
2: Uh, yeah, work life balance is fundamental, I think, to how I work. So, w- without thinking about it too much, but I, I always will say now, you know, the whole reason that I set up my own business with all its, you know, it's definitely not plain sailing. It's definitely not easy. There have been times on a Friday night where I wish I was employed and could clock off and say, I'm done and not have the responsibility of clients and managing people and designing and doing everything, I hold it in my head that I did it for flexibility. So I virtually never missed one of the kids' plays. I never missed their matches. It didn't matter how busy I was. I said the only reason I did this was so that I can drop everything and go if I need to or I don't want to miss out on stuff. I think I've always listened to older people very carefully who say, it goes in a flash. And I've just thought, you hear so many people say that, that it has to be true. And I can definitely say it now, you know, even with just older teenagers, it goes in a flash. And don't miss any of those things, because there's plenty of time. I mean, my granny worked full time until she was 84. I've still got decades left, hopefully. And if I haven't got decades left, I'd rather have spent it with the children. What did she do? She was an optician. She was the main breadwinner in, well, my my grandfather was a policeman and retired at 55 and so brought up my mum while my granny worked full time. So I kind of, I've always had that in my head thinking, there's plenty of time if I can give the kids their 18 years
1: and And then it's my time to fly. That's what I keep thinking. So I'm nearly there. (laughs) Timmy, you have. Have. And it, it, it's all in a mindset of like, where, what is achieving? Wow. Right? Like, you have started a business, you have built a business, you have done incredible work. I want to discuss some of your incredible work. So, how does one become an award winning garden designer? Well, you have to go and train as
2: a garden designer. Um, so, that was step one. And I. How long does that last? So, I did a year. Um, You can do degrees. I'm not entirely sure how many places to do degrees. You can obviously be a landscape architect, which is a university degree. Fair few landscape architects become garden designers and vice versa. There are a few garden designers who might go on to do landscape architecture. Quite a few architects also become garden designers, which always, there's a real hierarchy within design and, and architects sit at the top for me. So I'm always incredibly intrigued when architects become garden designers.
0: Do you find with people, you know, they buy their house, they spend hundreds of thousands, millions buying their house, they spend an absolute fortune and they spend an absolute fortune, you know, doing it up and it's their great pride and joy and it's the biggest investment they ever make and all of those things. And then the gardens are sort of afterthought and people don't allocate nearly as much you know, if you've got a house, maybe I don't know. I'm making the numbers up, but maybe you know, say sixty percent of the budget should be buying the house, twenty percent of the budget should be doing up the house, and another twenty percent of the budget should be the garden. And whereas people sort of
1: they totally spend underestimate, fortune, yeah,
0: they, people underestimate what needs to be spent on a garden, basically.
2: Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly that the, that people underestimate how much it costs. But in the, over the last ten years, it has gone from pretty much what you described so people doing their house up asking us to come in at the end of their house build and not realizing that that's going to then take quite a few months of planning and you know it's 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 essentially still building that has changed dramatically in the last 2 or 3 years with people now contacting me maybe a year in advance
0: The ideal gig for you is to do the house and the garden, presumably.
2: The ideal time for me is for people to come in and say, we're going to do an extension on the house or we're going to do this. We're changing the layout of the house and we would like to do the garden. So they're doing it almost before their building works have been done. That has definitely been helped in some way by planning. So for any new builds, the landscape plan has got to be done before planning goes in. But that's not the same for just doing renovations. But people's mindsets have changed. They're seeing the gardens as an, an extension of their houses and they're not, I, it might be the, the people that I work with and I know it is a bit of a bubble, they are no longer shocked by the price of gardens and, you know, I do manage expectations as much as I can when I go in. Uh, it's very difficult to, to say to people, you know, this is how much it's going to cost when you haven't even done a plan, but at least you can say it, it's definitely not going to be that. So, you know, people do suddenly start to realise. And you liken it to the kitchen floor. You say, well, how much did you spend on your kitchen floor tiles? And so, okay, well, we've got to spend that and we've got to build all of everything that goes under them. So, you know, just extrapolate that up and it's going to be expensive. They are expensive. Builders are expensive. You know, landscapers are in high demand. I don't know anyone without at least a sort of four to six month waiting list. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very busy industry right now. And it is definitely uh, feeling the effects of high demand, Brexit, pandemic. Everything's come together world, world, in a perfect storm. So materials are really tricky to get hold of at the moment. Plants are, I've never known it, difficult to get hold of plants at the moment. I'm going to three, four, five, six different nurseries to try and source plants. One of them sources from Europe. It, you, they just can't get them. So they're, you know, he was saying, <laughs> some of them are saying, you know, they've had years to go through the details on this, and it wasn't literally until Brexit happened that they suddenly said, can't supply this, can't supply that, can't supply that. And it's all because of the knock on, I don't know, I guess, whatever fees they're paying for export.
0: I thought the, crazy. Um, I don't know, but I thought the issue was exports, not imports, no exports oh, from the us. UK are meeting with all sorts of regulatory barriers in Europe, but imports from Europe—they're just following the previous rules until the new rules are established.
2: Mm. Definitely having knock-ons, especially from you know I was, they were definitely talking about German nurseries having real problems, and it, and it's nothing to do with the nurseries not wanting to sell their yeah. stock. Um.
0: <laughs> I don't see what the problem is. Like we want to buy French wine, the French want to sell us wine. What's yeah. the problem? But there seems to be.
1: But also so your, I think the your high lot, demand It's Juliet. It? It's the admin. <laughs> I, know, it's the I know it's to with the admin. I know there's a lot stuck on balance. <laughs> is it, is it cho- lawyers? Is it lawyers causing all of this problem? <laughs> I've no doubt. I've no doubt. I will, I will take the blame for the shortage of plants here.
2: The only the, the massive problem with shortage of plants is this isn't going to go away next year. This is going to have a knock-on effect for years.
0: And remember, if you like what we do here, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. And now, a quick word from our sponsor.
3: At ulrich Clark, we understand that many of our clients want to be better informed about the issues they face, but don't have the time to wade through all of the legalese and accounting jargon to get there. We know that people love our easy-to-read quick guides on the most common problems facing our clients, and if you're here, then you probably like podcasts. So we thought, why not combine the two and make it even easier for people to access the knowledge of our team of multidisciplinary experts. Recently, Dominic Frisby sat down with Simon Walsh and Ian Phipps to talk about best practice for setting up a UK company.
0: It's interesting as well, Ian. I think they're talking about trying to simplify the number of filings that <laughs> companies have to do so they, they are, are cynically. talking about uh, if you submit your tax return then you don't have to also then refile your accounts at Companies House where at the moment you need to do multiple things which can drive most small business my, owners my, to my, distraction. My, I was going to say, my experience of HMRC is the word simplification yes, is Orwellian speak. Absolutely. <laughs> complication. <laughs> but the other issue to bear in mind with coming Accounts, and I think it's one that a lot of our clients, you know, um, don't aren't aware of initially, is that there's quite strict audit requirements in the UK. An audit's the sort of big A word that everyone's scared of, you know, quite rightly, because it's you know full review of the accounts. It's expensive, it's bureaucratic, it has to be done. But but if the company exceeds certain thresholds, or two out of three of these thresholds, then it needs an audit. Those accounts have to be audited formally by an external auditor, which we do um, for a lot of our clients. You can find
3: our audio quick guides in the resource library at auriclark.com or search for Auri Clark Quick Guides wherever you get your podcasts.
1: We need to discuss Hampton Court. Was this not the making of you, Mel? Or, or um, the death of you, maybe? I saw um, you at the end of it, I think.
2: It was, yeah, so that was, where I'd, it was the year after I'd qualified. And it was off the back, I'd done two smaller show gardens and then... I applied to. They have a category which is really interesting called conceptual gardens, which can be anything. They usually have some kind of charity, not not not-minded, but some of them are, are built for charities. Some of them are built to sort of raise awareness of of different issues. I had one next door to me that was raising awareness of a um, war zone can't remember the details of it exactly, but it had, you know, sort of, it was very dry and arid and had poppies coming. Out. It was beautiful. And I built a gallery, a proper gallery, wooden floors, white walls. And then the openings in the walls held what I had put together displays of plants that were in the style of famous artists, which is great and fun. So I had like a, a Monet and I put a water feature in with a sort of image of a bridge behind it and lots of lilies and um, I had a Russo that was um, like big big jungle plants and um, yeah it was really fun. I did a Damien Hirst and and you get these things called air plants that don't need any soil or water and I put it in a glass tank in the middle and it was strung up with um, fishing twine so you couldn't see the twine so it's basically just the suspended air plant in the middle of a glass tank. So yeah it was lots of fun. Lots cool stuff and, and presumably... Award winning.
0: Uh, and that's one of your awards, that put you on the I map, I got a
1: gold it? award for that, yes, which was... Amazing. Um, Only, you know, one year great. into garden design mm-hmm. and Mel Tate's the top award. You, got, you have a lot of good ideas when you first start, though. You know, they're like
2: spewing out, like you can't stop them. And then, and everyone said, oh, you'll get the bug, you know, the, the garden, the show garden bug. And I didn't really, I, I loved it. And it's incredibly fun to be there and to be building with everyone. And horror, I mean, just such hard work. You, you know, you never got a budget. So it was basically me doing a lot of the building work on my own. And I had a, a lovely builder who helped me do it. But I then kind of wanted it, you know, it's, maybe it's because I just keep wanting to push forwards. So it's like, well, now I want to build
1: the business. Now I want to do real gardens. And and you've managed that. I mean, you have built a successful business. I I believe I'm going to be entering your wait list for, for, (laughs) well. It's a long wait list now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. No, it's fine. It's great. You can join my wait list. Uh, I had a lovely business coach last year who helped me and she's written a book and she has a whole chapter on no, just. How to say no? When to say no? Brits can't say. say. We can't say no.
1: We can't. We. It's not in our vocabulary. No. We we have a complete inability. It's. I don't understand why. But she had a lovely way of putting it,
2: and she said, "You are not necessarily saying no because they're the wrong client for you. You might be the wrong designer for them." And just flipping it and thinking, "I am not the
1: right designer for everyone," is has made it easier to say no. (laughs) I have to say, Mel, I don't know how you do what you do because I can imagine many people getting fully involved and being like, this is what I would like and this is Mm. how I would
2: like it. And And they're long relationships. You know, I've done gardens where I've been working with people for over two years. So it's not something you've got to really like each other. And and they're at the most stressful times. They're people going through building projects. They're people spending huge amounts of money. Things are going wrong. They're living in a mess. You know, you're really dealing with people when they're under stress.
1: And then you might be in their lives for a long time. (laughs) Mel, I also want to know what's the easiest thing to grow. Should we be growing our own food? I think so.
2: Do Do you know why I think that we should grow our own food? This also goes back to something we were talking about before the podcast about NEPA states where they've done a big wilding project. But if we, as a nation, could all grow a little bit of food, then we could free up some maybe farmland that's not particularly profitable to be rewilded. Which I think would be the most amazing initiative if we just said to someone... You know, just grow your salad, which is really easy to grow. Maybe we could free up acres and acres of farmland. That is, I mean, I'm talking about low-grade farm, you know, farmland. I don't want to, you know, we all need food, so I'm not talking about, um, you know, us not producing enough food. But I'm sure. Uh, so gardens and allotments are something like forty or fifty percent more productive than farmland. We can grow astonishing amounts of food in small spaces. With human input so human labor and and space because we can do things like growing a little bit of garlic around our peas or a little bit of the farms can't do that at scale um so so if we can even just you know if each of us did a tiny patch it could free up a lot of land to then return to the wild
0: Juliet, do you mind if I go on a rant
2: no
1: go for it
0: right <laughs> the the uh do you know If you look at the the UK and Google Maps or something, it's basically green. The question for the floor, how much land in the UK has residential housing on it? What percentage? Have a guess.
1: I've no idea, Dom. You always give me these things at my general knowledge on this kind of
0: stuff. Just have a a guess. Just say a number. (laughs) Six percent. Good guess. What's your guess, higher or lower?
1: Oh, I would have said way higher, like 30 percent.
0: One percent. It's actually 1.2% of land in the UK has residential housing on it. 1.2%. Residential Um, housing. Uh, Another 1.% has commercial property on it. And 2% is roads. Only 4% of the UK is is built on. And so you could literally double the UK housing stock and only build on 1% of UK land. Like that's how ridiculous planning in this country is. And I'm not advocating. Uh, this is it's your lot. It's the admin people again.
1: <coughs> uh, hold on, hold on. But I think the UK is amazing for planning. In, in well, we've all had arguments with the planners, but. The fact that we keep stock, but uh, Dom, that, okay, those figures just, have blown my mind. It's now. not
0: just pl- national Eco- ecosystem Asse- assessment twenty eleven. It's not just planning. By the way, it's it's land ownership, the distribution of land.
1: So, is your question what should we be doing with that land? We no,
0: I'm just, I'm just. That's just the premise for the rant that I'm about to go on.
1: Oh, go, go, go! <laughs> I'm ready. The rant I'm hasn't <laughs> started yet. This the rant hasn't started. Exciting.
0: So. We have this country where, you know, nobody born after about 1985 can afford to buy anywhere decent to live. And the only reason people before 1985 can afford somewhere is because they got on the, the ladder early on. And so we've got this ridiculous state of affairs with the allocation of land. And like, I think it's like 40 or... It's, it's something like... It's 66% of UK land is owned by fewer than 6,000 bodies.
1: That mm-hmm. I can easily And believe. it's like the Forestry Crown, a few, the
0: Forestry Commission, uh, the, the uh, military... The military owns shed loads. So when you look at, you do your Google Maps, look at UK land, so much of it is set aside for farmland, of which it, the only reason that that farmland stays as farmland is because of all the subsidies given to the farmers. And so it literally pays them not to do anything with the land. Now that's slowly changing because of their subsidies, encouraging people to do rewilding and let it grow. But if it was totally a free market and there was no subsidy that land would not be farmland it would be used for something else whether it's rewilding or campsites or building or whatever and the whole of the uk wouldn't just become a building site because i've just given you those statistics about how much land is actually used for housing that 1% figure doesn't include gardens by the way it just just the the actual houses but my thing is is if you look at, at a you know, you drive through the country and everyone goes, England's green and pleasant land. But a lot of the time you just look at it and you go, it's just a field. It's just a field with a load of rapeseed in it. Or it's just a field with one monogamous crop in it. That is not beautiful. Beautiful is all higgledy-piggledy weeds and nep and rewilding and this and that and and variety and all this sort of indigenous wildlife that's just disappeared because of this sort of monotonous, mono-farming thing we've got going. So... That is my rant.
1: But farming is changing. I'm getting,
0: getting, just so that listeners know, I'm I'm getting Mel nodding and I'm getting Juliet looking like her back's (laughs) been put up. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
2: (laughs) I am, I am nodding because uh, we've also got, and I, I don't know the figures, but one of the least wild countries.
0: And it doesn't anywhere, need to be like that. And, and if, you've, if if the population was to vote, do you want more yeah. wildlife? Do you want more yeah. nature? Do you We'd want more variety? There. We'd all vote for that. We're ahead of Tories mm. or Labour or whatever it is.
1: Totally. So, Don, we are going to start a campaign and we are going to change things at the end of all of these series we are going to have a hit list of all the things that we are going to do right and and one of those can be that like i i think there is a will i think you know there is definitely a view like on on a desire for things to improve and to go back to the land and my god i'm off to to plant something after listening to mel in her soil and her fingers and i mean my children will be all over that but in all seriousness, I think it has been changing over time. I think this past year has really. And I hope through all the darkness and people living in, you know, small environments, what it, it, it is going to come back. And, and you guys were talking about this amazing place, mm. NEP, which I was like, what is that? Um, which is some estate that has converted from a failing farm into a beautiful place you can go and see and do and live in the land. And, I think there is a push for that.
0: I think you can just see it. If you walk or even just drive through it, when you just look at a field that's just monoculture and then you look at somewhere that's just been left to its own devices and it's woodland or grassland, whatever it is, you can just see it. There's an energy that gets exuded from the one that just... And the the other's like being in some dystopian Orwellian mm.
2: field. <laughs> Love. It's interesting what you just said about energy then because I had... Um, My husband's working from home, uh, has been since pandemic kind of came onto our lands. Anyway, he had a new colleague who he'd never met before, so he came over to our house. I'd never met him before, and I love this now. My husband goes for like a working walk. It's brilliant. He just said, we're going to go for a walk. I'm like, this is the best way of working. But anyway, they walked around the garden, and this guy who I'd never met before said, your garden has a vitality and energy that is really special, and I almost cried because i you know i've never met him he doesn't know anything about the way that i think anything about the way that i garden and in one sentence he encapsulated absolutely everything that i've been working towards
1: and i was like it's insane but yeah the energy i think is is what it has we should be sitting in Mel's garden now doing this, Dom. And you would hear the birds Aww. and you'd I'm have... I'm a big,
0: big believer in, in the old the walking meetings thing. That's all very Aristotelian.
1: Is it? <laughs>
0: yeah, he had the peripatetic school. He insisted on doing all his lessons walking. And there's an energy... You think of all your great ideas you have. I bet you have walking. loads of them when you're walking.
1: I have my best chats. As a family, we all walk. If we want mm. a s- serious chat,
0: we go for a walk. The part of the brain that restricts creativity, is taken up with the automated function of walking, and thereby creativity is is inspired when you walk. There's a, they've done a study mm. of it.
2: I couldn't live with it. I mean, definitely, you know, I've never been able to, you know, I've walked every day for a very long time, but, uh, you know, last year it was a
1: saviour. So, Mel, please tell us, what are you most excited about for the future of your business?
2: Oh, I'm really excited about saying no to more people. No, I'm not. I I do feel like I want to help most people if I can. But the last year has been busy and it has shown people that gardens are important if they have them. And there are some great designers out there. And I think for me, I need to be really true to what I believe is the right thing to do because i think there are a lot of gardens that i can design i know i you know over the years you learn what people want i know that i can deliver that but sticking to your your true beliefs is hard and sometimes needs a lot more knowledge behind me so where i would like to be is you know i am more interested in ecological design and i just want to be a little bit truer to myself in that I don't think it's going to, you know, there are enough designers out there for everyone. So I think it's just that whole creating that niche for myself and saying, you know, if you want this type of garden, come to me.
0: If there was one thing in the world you could change over the next five years, what would it be? And I think you might already have said what the answer to this is, but...
2: Oh, I, I might well have done it. For me, it would be people understanding their own connection to nature. Because I think that. You know, as a nation, we are totally, you know, we're animal lovers, we're wildlife lovers. We love David Attenborough. We love watching BBC Wildlife, you know, documentaries. But now we need to connect that to to what is outside our back doorstep and not think that because it's not the wilds of Africa or the jungles of the Amazon, it's not important.
0: Mel, if people want to find out more about you and what you do and so on and so forth, how would one go about doing that?
2: I, I do like Instagram. I haven't got a massive Instagram following, but I am a fan. <laughs> so I am melissa.jolly on Instagram. Uh, LinkedIn, I'm on there, but I'm I, I wouldn't even know what my nobody's on, name LinkedIn. on LinkedIn. I am <laughs> Tom.
0: <laughs> Just the admin team.
2: <laughs> I don't know who's on LinkedIn. Um, yeah, that's it. Uh, you I think have your, your own, own website. Do you have a website? I've got my own website, yeah. MelissaJolly.co.uk. Website and Instagram, they're the best places.
0: Okay, melissajolly.co.uk and and Juliet, I'm sorry for insulting LinkedIn. (laughs) So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. That was this week's episode of Business Without thank you to our guest, Melissa Jolly, for joining us. A big thank you to you, dear listener, for listening. And we'll be back with another episode next week. And before that, if you like this show, please do rate and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at Biz Without BS, B-I-Z Without BS, where you'll find more helpful business content. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel by searching for us using the hashtag Biz Without BS, or Oury Clark, O-U-R-Y Clark. Thank you very much.
3: Business Without B*** is brought to you by Oury Clark. We've been helping individuals and businesses cut through red tape in order to prosper since 1935. To find out how our team of multidisciplinary experts can help you, whatever your needs, email us at contact at ouryclark.com. That is contact at ouryclark.com or via our website. Ori Clark, you provide the questions, we'll give you an answer.